0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the continuing efforts of Trump and his supporters to subvert and ultimately destroy democracy through conspiracy theories, gerrymandering, and harassment campaigns. Clips today are from The David Packman Show, The Bradcast, In the Thick, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Chauncey DeVega Show, The Takeaway, and The Tom Hartman Program.
1: Okay. If you want to get a sense of how long this election fraud stuff is going to be going on, Donald Trump just sent a letter to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, demanding that he be declared the winner of Georgia. Trump demanding that Trump be declared the winner of Georgia. Don't check your calendar. This isn't a repeat. It really is mid September of 2021. It's not November of 2020. It's not December of uh, 2020. It's, uh, it's almost October of 2021. And Donald Trump is demanding that he be given the state of Georgia in the November of 2020 election. Donald Trump sent this letter on Friday. I fully expected when I saw this headline, I I thought this must be from months ago. It must have just resurfaced like it can't be from now. But indeed it is. The letter is dated September 17, 2021. The letter says, Dear Secretary Raffensperger, Large scale voter fraud, random capitalization. I still don't understand it. His followers do it, too. Large scale voter fraud continues to be reported in Georgia. Enclosed is a report of 43,000 absentee ballot votes counted. Now, the count counted is capitalized, guys. The counting is so important that he's put a capital C on it in the middle of a sentence. Absentee ballots of ballot votes counted in DeKalb County. That violated the chain of custody rules, making them invalid. I would respectfully request that your department check this. And if true, along with many other claims of voter fraud and voter irregularities, start the process of decertifying the election or whatever the correct legal remedy is and announce the true winner. He's saying announce me as the winner of Georgia. It's October. As stated to you previously, the number of false and or irregular votes is far greater than needed to change the Georgia election result. People do not understand why you and Governor Brian Kemp adamantly refuse to acknowledge the now proven facts and fight so hard that the election truth not be told. You and Governor Kemp are doing a tremendous disservice to the great state capitalized of Georgia and to our capital and nation, which is systematically being destroyed by an illegitimate Ill, Ill president and his administration. The truth must be allowed to come out. Thank you for your attention to this matter. Their argument is that because some forms were dated a few hours late, I'm interpreting what is being said here. Okay. Some forms were dated a few hours late. They want every result from all of those uh, ballot boxes thrown out and not counted. They want to disenfranchise tens of thousands of voters because of some messed up paperwork with some of these ballots. Now the law that they cite is this emergency declaration, which has rules for ballot drop boxes. It doesn't say if any rule is violated, you throw the, all the ballots in the box into the trash. It doesn't actually say that it doesn't say throw the votes out and don't count them. So all of this is being signal boosted by articles being written that say because it appears that maybe some ballots had were a few hours late in being certified. You need to just throw out all the ballots from those ballot boxes. There's nothing in the law that suggests that should be happening. So at this point, is this a mental health issue? Is this trolling? is it grifting? It was just this letter was released just before the Saturday rally in support of the Trump rioters. Maybe it was an indirect way to try to rile people up. Remember, Donald Trump. Remember when he just asked for 11000 votes to be found for him?
2: I need 11000 votes. Give me a break.
1: This guy seems willing to do anything. But again, the issue is the burden of proof. He says he has the evidence, But he wants Brad Raffensperger to prove that his allegations are true. What this may actually be is an attempt to preempt what increasingly seems is going to be an investigation into Trump's attempts to overturn the Georgia results. This is an article from Friday, the same day as this letter came out. Georgia criminal probe into Trump's attempts to overturn 2020 election quietly moves forward. So this may be Trump trying to argue, look, I wasn't trying to break the law when I asked for 11000 votes. What I meant is what I said in this letter, which is you should investigate this and you should investigate that. It's like that Weasley mafioso type speak that we've become accustomed to from Donald Trump. But a delusional letter, I was convinced this letter must be six months old. No, it's from Friday
3: i've been uh, referring to this uh, recall as a stupid ridiculous recall now yes, see why it cost about 300 million dollars to run and we pretty much ended up with the same results that gavin newsom got Back in 2018, when he ran, when Donald Trump lost here in the state just not even a year ago. Yes, it was stupid. It was a waste of money. And anyone who refers to Republicans as conservative after they forced the state to shell out some, I think it was $269 million for this stupid recall. They are not conservatives conservatives don't waste taxpayer dollars like that, at least not real ones.
4: Especially not when there's a re-election
5: campaign just, just next, next year. year.
3: I know. It's unbelievable. In fact, as we go to air, with 70% of the ballots now tallied, of course it'll take several weeks for the rest of the vote-by-mail and provisional ballots to be counted and everything to be canvassed, etc. As we go to air, no on the question of whether Newsom shall be removed is ahead by 64 to 36 That is a blowout, at least for now, though I suspect that lead may increase as more vote by mail ballots are actually tallied in the uh, next few days and weeks. That is a 28 point lead at the moment, or almost exactly what Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump by in 2020 in California. Twenty nine points in that case. We'll see if Newsom's lead widens in the uh, coming days, as I think is likely. But in 2018, when Newsom was elected to his first term, he defeated Republican John Cox by 34 points. If he's wildly unpopular in the state, as we have been told now for weeks on end, not just by Fox News, but by some in the actual real news media who said that Gavin Newsom is, uh, is in trouble, he's not popular in the state, Apparently, he's still quite popular. In any event, he did not lose many voters in a low turnout special election since the last time he won in a regular election. Republican talk radio host Larry Elder would have replaced Newsom had the recall succeeded, having easily won on the ballot's second question, which is moot because Newsom won on the first question. Newsom's campaign had instructed Democrats not even to bother voting at all on that second question, which is a strategy that I certainly questioned. In this case, it apparently worked out that after Elder had vowed to end all masking and vaccine mandates and uh, basically bring the polar opposite political worldview to Sacramento, which was rejected by Californians, the recall turned on Newsom's approach the pandemic, including mask and vaccine mandates. And Democrats cheered the outcome, says AP, as evidence that voters approve of that approach. The race was also a test of whether opposition to former President Donald Trump and his right wing politics remain a motivating uh, force for Democrats and independents as the party looks ahead to midterm elections next year. Republicans had hoped for proof that frustrations over months of pandemic precautions would somehow drive voters away from Democrats. Turns out it didn't. Not by a long shot, at least not in a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans by nearly two to one. In his brief victory remarks after the no vote to remove Newsom won the day, the governor told supporters that no is not the only thing that he wanted to focus on.
6: Good evening. It appears that we are enjoying an overwhelmingly uh, no vote tonight here in the state of California. But no is not the only thing that was expressed tonight. I want to focus on what we said yes to as a state. We said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to people's right to vote without fear of fake fraud or voter suppression we said yes to women's fundamental constitutional right to decide for herself what she does with her body and her fate and future we said yes to diversity we said yes to inclusion we said yes to pluralism we said yes to all those things that we hold dear as californians and i would argue as americans economic justice social justice, racial justice, environmental justice, our values where California's made so much progress, all of those things were on the ballot this evening. And so I'm humbled and grateful to the millions and millions of Californians that exercised their fundamental right to vote and express themselves so overwhelmingly by rejecting the division, by rejecting the cynicism, by rejecting so much of the negativity that's defined our politics in this country over the course of so many years. I just think of our kids watching all of this, nightly news, day in and day out, and I just wonder, I've got four young kids, oldest about to turn 12 this weekend, and what they're growing up to, we're so divided, these kids increasingly fearful, isolated, disconnected, and we're teaching them that. And it doesn't have to be that way. I think we owe our kids a deeper sense of respect and all of us as adult responsibility to, to disregard this false separateness. We're so much more in common as a state and a nation that we give ourselves credit for. I've been all over the state of California over the last many years, but notably in the last nine months. Conservative parts of the state, progressive parts of the state, folks that I, I know were going to vote no and votes that I knew were going to vote yes on this recall and, and turned out to do just that. But one thing that's universal, everybody wants to be respected. Everyone wants to feel some connection to one another. We all certainly in this pandemic want to feel safe, protected. And those are universal values. And I think about just in the last... You know, a few days, and the former president put out saying this election was rigged. You know, democracy is not a football. You don't throw it around. It's more like a, I don't know, antique vase. You can drop it and smash it in a million different pieces. And that's what we're capable of doing if we don't stand up to meet the moment and push back. I said this many times on the campaign trail. We may have defeated Trump, but Trumpism is not dead in this country. The big lie, the January 6 insurrection, all the voting suppression efforts that are happening all across this country, what's happening, the assault on fundamental rights, constitutionally protected rights of women and girls. It's a remarkable moment in our nation's history, but I'm reminded of uh, something I don't know, a few decades ago someone told me when describing a difficult and challenging moment said, the world is too small, our time is too short, and our wisdom is too limited to win fleeting victories at other people's expenses. He went on to say, we must all triumph together. So in that spirit of recognizing and reconciling this moment in trying to understand what's going on, not just here in this state, but all across the United States of America. I I just want to say this. Tonight, I'm humbled, grateful, but resolved in the spirit of my political hero, Robert Kennedy, to make more gentle the life of this world.
7: All right. Our first topic, people, is California's gubernatorial recall election not? Okay. (laughs) So on Tuesday, a special election was held in a GOP-led attempt to remove Governor Gavin Newsom from office, which is really interesting, right? Because we're in New York and Governor Cuomo is gone. Yeah. Hi, Dios. And so on the other side of the country in California... Something else happened. A resounding majority of Californians voted against the recall, effectively keeping Gavin Newsom in office. His leading opponent, I know, I don't even understand how it could be that his leading opponent was a Republican candidate whose name yeah. is Larry Elder. If you don't know him. Oh, gosh. It's good. Good. Uh, it's, it's, you probably its probably it's good. It's probably don't OK know. for you. Right. <laughs> he is a black conservative radio talk show host who is like grossly anti-immigrant super anti-black. So the recall is basically like a culmination of a lot of hatred by right-wing conservatives towards Gavin Newsom. They don't like his progressive policies period, specifically things about education and immigration. So the recall actually was in the works before the shutdown, before the pandemic. I thought it was because of the pandemic. No, 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 no. So they were organizing to recall Newsom Blaming him for the rise in houselessness, for the rise in homicide, and they were criticizing his handling later of the COVID 19 pandemic. Specifically, and get this, they were pissed off because Gavin Newsom wanted mask mandates. Oh my God. At the root of this, really, is a white supremacist, right wing yeah. led response to essentially California's progressive policies that, by the way, we all benefit from because, as goes California, then follows the rest of the country. So goes the nation. So our producer Harsha Nahata got on the phone with Jean Guerrero, who's an opinion columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and she's been covering the recall and
8: white nationalism. Here's what Jean had to say. I think one of the missing pieces in the media coverage of this recall election is just how central white supremacy was in driving it and then in, in spelling its doom. Ultimately, there's a lot of talk about how California has been a leader on climate change and on COVID response and recovery. And both of those are are racial justice issues. And Californians understood that what was being attacked, what governing style that actually embraces racial justice and equal rights for all. Just within months of Newsom being elected, Fox News launched an anti-California, anti-Newsom campaign that was incredibly racially charged. They were talking about California as a, quote, third world state, renewing old ways of talking about California from the 1990s when we saw Prop 187 and all of these attacks on immigrant communities. They were talking about it as a place full of zombies in the streets, showing our our largely Black and brown homeless population. In fact, that problem is due to moderates and conservatives and faux progressives who resist affordable housing. It's all kinds of really apocalyptic language and tying that to progressive policies that embrace racial diversity and and equal rights for everybody.
7: I mean, if they were predicting this in the 1990s, right? Yeah. That the next century in California was going to be a disaster because of all those Mexican immigrants and all those Latinos and all those Asian people coming and all those progressives, ah, 2021 California seems to be doing just fine. Yeah,
9: exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, Maria, I mean, here we go again. It's, you know, although I like the zombies, if you're going to get creative, you might as well go with zombies, right? To to really like, (laughs) if you want to, you know, we went from Prop 187. If we're going to zombies in 2021, then, um, you know, but listen, even with the success of the push to keep Newsom in office and all, you know, Larry Elder and all that crazy stuff, we do have to recognize a couple of things. Latino voters in this election made up at least 25% of all votes and over half of those voted against the recall. But Latinos are not a monolithic group. I'm going to start turning it into a musical. And it's not a monolithic group. So you wouldn't be surprised, Maria. That we're also seeing reports that a majority of the Latino men who voted on the second question in the recall ballot actually chose Republican candidate Larry Elder. Surprise, surprise. I'm not surprised.
7: That's what you call like machismo right there. Like, bro, I'm going to be a macho man and I'm going to vote for the black guy who hates black people and Latinos. I'm going to vote for him. And,
9: you know, zombies on the streets. And so basically, let's just be real. Latina women once again deliver and Latino men are voting for people who believe that zombies are taking over.
7: Sounds familiar to black men and black women leading the way. I'm just saying. But That's the
9: point, because this is just another example of Trumpism not going away. And then also this Saturday in Washington, D.C., there's going to be a, quote, justice for J6 rally, J6 meaning January 6th. Planned by a former Trump campaign staffer, Matt Brainyard, to protest the charges brought against people who rioted the Capitol, the insurrectionists, on that fateful day in January. Maria, break it down because I don't want to turn this into like, oh, Latinos saved Gavin Newsom. People were worried that he was going to get recalled because he wasn't engaging Latinos. But then all of a sudden you find out that all these Latino dudes in California are with Larry Elder. What are your thoughts?
7: Well, I think that the question right there is why wasn't the Democratic Party engaging Latino and Latina voters more intensely. Yeah. I mean, come on, Peep. This is where it gets so frustrating, Julio, because it's we've been saying this for so long and it's not rocket science. It is science, though. Yeah. OK, because if you look at the demographics and you look at the population, you want to be engaging Latino and Latina voters everywhere, but specifically, hello, California. So you're right. I was like, is this possible? And I was preparing myself for the worst. And on the other hand, I think you're right. What we are talking about is white supremacy. Let's name it for what it is. I've done political reporting in California way back when for America by the Numbers. And in Orange County, that used to be a Republican stronghold. Yeah. It went Democrat the last time around. California was, you know, Ronald Reagan, the Republican. It is not that anymore.
0: If you ever wonder how Best of Left gets made, or more relevantly, if you ever thought about producing something with audio or video yourself and wondered where to start, I really encourage you to check out the software that I use. It's simple enough for a beginner, and the basics are free to use. You only pay if you need to get fancy. I was first attracted to the software for one feature related to how we produce our transcripts, and now it is the workhorse of the show. We put it through its paces, and it gets used constantly by myself, our producers, and the volunteer transcriptionists. It's a really innovative take on editing, bringing a whole new paradigm that makes it as easy to edit audio and video as it is to edit a word document so if you're thinking of doing pretty much anything with audio or video for public distribution or private use check out the link in our show notes if you end up signing up we'll get a little kickback for sending you there
10: Joining us now is MIT professor of political science, Charles Stewart III. He's co-director of the Caltech-MIT Voting Technology Project and the Stanford-MIT Healthy Elections Project. Uh, Professor Stewart, it's an honor to have you with us tonight. Thanks for taking time to be here.
11: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
10: Let me just first ask you if I'm asking the right questions and looking at the right universe of concerns, the kind of framing that I've put on this and the way that I've set this up, do you think that's the right way to look at it?
11: There's a big concern here, which is the undermining of, of, of American democracy. And look, it's, it's a commonplace, but it's fundamentally important to note that we're a you know, nation of laws, not of people. And we have ways of running elections. And those are set in stone. And we run elections by those laws. And we've done this for hundreds of years, a couple hundred years. And that's how democracies work, especially American democracies work. And what we're seeing right now is an attack on the rules by which we run our elections and a systematic attempt to call into question the outcomes based on what? Based on no evidence, based on um, violating the rules under which the elections were run and trying to run around I think the most important part of this last election, which is that elections are determined on the facts. And we've already had the facts determined. The facts determined that Joe Biden is president. And this current set of audits, at best, that are reviews, I don't know what they really are. They're not set at the facts because the facts have been established. So they're really oriented around creating confusion in the minds of a set of voters who are looking to political leaders for assurance about the nature of democracy, and they're not getting that assurance. And that's that's um, that's a big problem, totally big problem.
10: Why should it matter to the average voter whether Republican lawmakers in one state or another want to engage in this sort of fact-free sham election review and create confusion around whether or not election results can be trusted? I mean, I can imagine plenty of people saying, yeah, I recognize it's going to have that effect on other people. Thinking people are not going to believe in the results of these weird partisan review exercises, right. the people who are going to be persuaded by whatever's announced as the result of these things, they were ready to believe anything anyway. What's the danger here? These are people who are already willing to be deluded or to just lie about what's going on.
11: Well, you know, I, I think the danger is something that's oftentimes overlooked, that democracy is... You know, it depends on the trust of the people, but it also depends on election officials and the courts and the people in charge to do their jobs and do their job according to the law. And doing that is a meticulous, fact based process that's really hard to do. It takes a lot of energy and you're not paid a whole lot for it. And so I think that the big story here is the relentless harassment. Of good people who are following the law, who are not in it for the money, and that they are being hounded either to apparently do what Apple and Google did, which was acquiesce, mm-hmm. or just to get out of the business. So democracy everywhere depends on people doing meticulous, boring things all the time. And to have this cacophony of subpoenas and doubts and death threats thrown at you constantly is wearing on the people who are the stewards of democracy. And I think that's actually the big problem. Imagine anybody trying to do their job honestly and having your boss or having somebody in the next cubicle or somebody just down on the street yelling at you constantly, what are you going to do? You're going to get out of there. And that's what we worry about is that in the long term, this process could very well run out of the elections business. People who have been conscientious, people who, you know, root for one team or the other, you know, in their spare time, but when they're on the job, they do their job well and they do it as well as they can according to the law and I think that the big story here is that they are in the crosshairs I that, that's a that's a bad um, um, term to use but they're being targeted and I worry that people who are who've been trying to do the right thing are going to be replaced by folks who are less experienced at best and have wrong motives at worst
10: it's a really important reminder that these systems that we talk about and that we treasure and depend on and think of as our political inheritance they, these are systems that are only made up of people and that people are susceptible to all these pressures um, and they need to be protected.
12: You and I have spoken, I think, uh, multiple times over the past several years, starting with your book, uh, Eft, which talked about the redistricting strategy of the Republican Party and how it was injected with steroids. I hate to use this type of vernacular, but it was injected with steroids. It was basically the technological ability changed the entire ball game back in 2010. So, let's start and work our way backwards a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, where we are in terms of the Democrats and the Republicans and how tenuous the Democrats have in terms of a majority in this country and and what kind of swing will actually uh, change the balance of of power in the house at the very least.
13: You're right. Democrats have this control in Washington right now. They have the White House and they have both branches of Congress. But their control of the U.S. Senate is 50-50 and based on a tiebreaker by the vice president. And their control of the U.S. House is a slender five-seat majority. And that is despite the fact that Democratic candidates for the U.S. House in 2021, 4.7 million more votes nationwide than Republican candidates. That is a really large bulge there. And so when you go back to the previous time that a victory was as large as that, you have to look at the Republican victory back in 2014, when they won by a margin of about 4.4 million votes, that turned into 247 seats. So I think really what you see here is that Democrats have to win by huge majorities, even to have slender advantages in the number of seats that they hold, and Republicans can win much bigger majorities when they win, but they can also hold on to power even with fewer votes, and that's what's got to scare Democrats as they head into 2022. The I redistrict- yeah, I just want to just sit with this for a moment because I think it's hard for people to conceptualize
12: because it seems so wrong that it's almost it feels like it's impossible. And so just to be clear, Democrats won with over 4 million votes. If you add up how many people voted for Democrats for house races total across the country, 4 million people put, voted for someone with a D behind their name. And the Democrats have a four seat, uh, is it four seat majority, five seat majority? Five seat majority right now. Yes. And, and there's what, 223 seats. I think it is. Yes. Okay. And Republicans, when they won with a four million or so vote majority, they had 247 seats. They picked up 25 more seats than the Democrats. And we have a dynamic like this in Wisconsin. I keep I always reference to Wisconsin because it's such the uh, perfect illustration of this, and, and it's mind boggling. They have yeah. redistricted there in their state legislature, and Democrats won something like 52, 55% of the vote in the Wisconsin Democrats did. And yet the Republicans control the Wisconsin Senate 60 to 40% uh,
13: about, I mean, these are round numbers. Even worse than that, right? Democratic candidates won 203,000 more votes in Wisconsin in 2018, and yet they won 36 of 99 seats. And and so this is... Extraordinary. It's one thing that
12: people, I think, understand, like the Electoral College. Okay, that's anachronistic, and it was put in there to balance out. Uh, who knows? I, I don't buy the arguments of, of the Electoral College, but it is what it is. But there is no provision anywhere in any document anywhere that says one party, if they win a vast majority of the votes, still can't necessarily win. Right. In some instances, a majority of the seats.
13: That's what just- Republic? Yeah, what Republicans did. After they won state legislatures in 2010, in the last decade of redistricting, is they had complete control over mapmaking in some of the most important states in the country. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. These are the states that are changing. These are the states that the census data the other day that was released show continuing evolution of the demographics there. Republicans had complete control over how those state legislative and congressional maps were drawn in 2010. Republicans did not surrender a single state legislative chamber in any of those states for the last decade, even in years when Democrats won hundreds of thousands of more votes statewide. And Democrats really were only able to take back the U.S. House in 2018 after a series of court challenges in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and elsewhere won fairer maps. Democrats picked up four seats in Pennsylvania off a of fair map and two seats in North Carolina off of a fair map in 2020. That's six. If the majority right now is five, if those two partisan gerrymandering cases are not brought or go the other way, you're looking at Speaker Kevin McCarthy or potentially, right, Speaker Donald Trump in this current Congress right now, even though Democratic candidates won 4.7 million more votes.
12: I, you know, I had not realized that it was all contingent upon those seats that won, particularly that case in Pennsylvania. And we should say that that case in Pennsylvania, and I I don't know why, I've never been able to really fully uh, understand, reflects the congressional districts only, not the state legislative uh, districts. And so you still have a problem in
13: Pennsylvania as well. You very much do. And I think that is something we talk a lot about the nature of Congress and how gerrymandering has given Republicans built-in advantages now as far as the U.S. House, it has also given Republicans huge advantages in state legislatures around the country in all of those states we just talked about. And they are using those gerrymandered advantages in state legislatures to pass aggressive voter suppression bills in some of these quickly changing, closely contested states. They're also using that power to assault labor rights, to assault reproductive rights, to ban the teaching of critical race theory in schools, to insert emergency manager uh, laws in in the state of Michigan that uh, voters have vetoed via initiative, but uh, lawmakers put back into place anyway. And then the emergency manager in Flint switches the water supply to the Flint River and poisons the town. All of this is gerrymandering. And all of this is the kind of deeply baked in minority rule that we are seeing a real crisis of. And as we head into this next redistricting cycle, it could get far worse.
12: I want to talk about this next uh, redistricting cycle and, and the data that's come out and also what's happening with, you know, in places like Michigan, there's an independent commission. And I, I saw a breaking story from you uh, the other night, I think it was on, on Twitter. But first, let's just, I want to just address, and this wasn't, an, you know, an argument that you were met with when you wrote your book years ago. What of the argument that we sometimes hear that th- th- that this isn't all a function of redistricting, that it is in part a, a phenomena of self-sorting that is going on. People of like mind want to live next to people of like mind. If I'm looking at, I'm going to move from Asheville, North Carolina. I'm going to look at a place like Austin, or I'm going to look at a place like, I don't know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, or I'm going to go to Burlington, Vermont, or I'm going to go to to different places. People are congregating with people who are more like-minded. It's a polarizing time. It's also become very cultural in terms of our politics and our culture have really melded. What do you say to people who say, look, this
13: is not a nefarious thing. It's just the way that people have sorted themselves. There is a big sorting going on. We have sorted ourselves, but it has little or nothing to do with the advantages that Republicans have given themselves in the House and in state legislatures through redistricting. And courts have continuously looked at the evidence on this over the course of the last decade, and they have weighed the academic studies on sorting versus gerrymandering. And they have made it clear that in a state like Wisconsin, for example, they estimate that sorting is about 1% of the problem. So there has certainly been a big sort, but that doesn't explain the fact simply some of the cities that you just mentioned, Asheville, North Carolina, has two Republican representatives in Congress because they drew the line directly through the middle of the city and cracked it in half. Austin, Texas is a blue oasis in the Lone Star State. It has five representatives, four Republicans, because of the way that the lines were drawn and they pizza-sliced the entire city up in order to attach a bunch of blue neighborhoods in Austin onto rural, conservative, whiter pieces of Texas. So if you look at the difference really between 2008 and 2012, I think you can really see the difference that gerrymandering makes. We depend heavily
0: on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you, and that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and, in many countries, illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other, less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at Bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support.
14: So, you know, the other day I wrote that piece where I basically said, Joe Biden, it's inevitable, it's obvious, he's going to be impeached. Because they're going to win back the House. And the emails I received, I will assume from mostly Democrats, liberals, progressives, and the like, I would say were more mean-spirited than anything I've received from Trumpists. And I'm reading these emails and things people were saying on Facebook and elsewhere, and you tell me if I'm using the terminology correctly. I said this looks and seems and feels like a type of narcissistic injury. That telling the truth about the situation is so upset them that it's almost personal because they're invested in a certain reality that doesn't exist. And I'm still trying to process that anger. I would think people would want to know the truth or what I see the the tea leaves, it's not rocket science, pointing to. But there's so much denial. How should I process this? How would you make sense of it?
4: I think people are terrified and people are stressed out of their minds. A big part of it is that many of us, maybe even most of us, believed that if Biden did indeed win slowly over time, things would get back to normal, whatever that means, that the threat would pass and that we could start rebuilding. And the fact that not only did that not happen, but the threat has increased, threats on all sides, threats from COVID, threats from our continuing economic crisis, threats to our way of governance, threats to our way of life. And I think that's overwhelmed a lot of people. And to be reminded of a very obvious truth that if indeed we do lose the house, it's kind of over. Overwhelms people's ability to process it because it's unbearable. I mean, I find it unbearable, even though I agree with you. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to have to think about it. That should be the evil genius of the tactics on the right, the stuff that demoralizes, enervates us. You know, the chaos, the division, the anger energizes them because it's all directed at the people they hate. And they seem to be immune from it. And I mean, that's something that I think came directly from Donald. So the outcome of that, of course, is that as you write in your piece today, people get complacent because they have to believe everything's just fine and nothing is.
14: The idea that there are people who want to hurt you. We have all the technical language, you know, Tim Snyder. Myself, others, it's not a new idea. You know, he calls it sadopopulism. I call it political sadism. And I keep wanting folk to wake up and grow the hell up. You are dealing with people who want to hurt you. You can look at the Texas Roe versus Wade, taking away people's rights to vote, putting babies in cages, unleashing the police, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, we talked about this last time. I was trying to explain this to somebody. I said Donald Trump is permission. He's given people to be permission for their own ugly selves and to hurt people. And again, going back to denial, we keep trying to tell them, you got to grow up. These people want to hurt you. But from the Democrats down to the rank and file, it just seems like some folk, and I will exclude black and brown folk, Jewish brothers and sisters, the Roma, others, I'd say, you know, Irish brothers and sisters who know their history. Some folk know about pain, right? They know there are people who want to hurt you, Palestinian brothers and sisters, First Nations, but you've got the mass public still living this lie that is politics is normal. I like, All this stuff happening, they want you to suffer. But we keep telling people, and it just seems like it's that denial again. It's like, I don't know what else we can tell them. They're trying to hurt you, and they love it.
4: That's really one of the reasons I wrote the book, because if we, and by we, I mean the majority, white Americans, don't start to grapple with our role and our responsibility, then how can we expect anybody else to hang in there and keep fighting? We're all exhausted to one degree or another, but you think we're exhausted? Talk to the people who've been dealing with the horrors inflicted upon them for 400 years. Seriously, you know, the generational trauma and the way it built on the one side. And on the other side, you have the generational privilege building. Here we are and white people just cannot look in the mirror because they literally think that if they take responsibility for the fact that they benefited from this horrifically unfair and cruel system, then somehow they're responsible for slavery. We're adult human beings. Act like it. Face it. Own it. Take responsibility for it. Otherwise, nothing changes. And the people who have always suffered the most will continue to suffer the most.
14: How do you make sense, because this gets to the book and just your work more generally. Therapeutize me, because I'm sure a lot of folks are struggling with this. How are you making sense processing what feels like? And I think the empirical evidence is there. We can talk to public health experts looking at this mess, other folks. This feels like a society that's coming apart at the seams. Normal was not normal anyway. Normal, people want to return to normal. I was like, no, normal wasn't good. So that's the problem to begin with. But as we watch this deluge, understanding that if it bleeds, it leads, the distortions of the news media, I'm just talking about the feeling of the moment, because this is a world historical moment where so many things are happening, and Gramsci described it as an interregnum, that so many things are being made right now, but I try to crystallize it down because I trust my gut and I trust my mind together. I'm like, this is a sick society coming apart. And when I try to tell folk, you're going to wake up on a Monday, and this happened with Trump's election, and on the next Monday, the world will be totally different. And it's going to happen that fast. It's already happening quick. It's accelerating, but a series of things are going to happen that will literally blow your mind.
4: Part of it is... This long term trend on the right to devalue human life and to be willing to accept things that are really unacceptable. Ruth Bendigiat, who's a scholar of authoritarianism, pointed out to me because I've been trying to make sense why are people going to his rallies and risking getting COVID? Why are people now refusing a safe, easily accessible free vaccine and taking something that could really make them ill? Like, horse warmer instead and she said that it, you know the gun culture has a big hand in it because slowly over time people have become willing to accept the most horrific loss of life in exchange for an ability to hang onto a piece of metal and if a bunch of six-year-olds need to die so be it and the difference here though They are so much more at risk from COVID. Their children are so much more at risk from COVID that I think a line has been crossed. And it's now that in order to prove their loyalty, in order to prove that they too are worthy, they need to be willing to sacrifice their lives. And that's something you quite know that is on the one hand, making microaggressions against people that end up becoming very consequential. But he's also really good at getting micro concessions from people. You're at a rally and his plane is on the tarmac and he says, isn't that the most amazing, greatest, best plane you've ever seen in your life? And you couldn't care less, but you say yes, because you don't want to be rude. And next thing you know, you're willing to go to a rally in the middle of a pandemic without a mask on, standing shoulder to shoulder with unvaccinated people screaming. It's extraordinary alongside of that, or maybe foundationally, is this the way in which the right in general and Donald in particular, really good at using fear as a weapon to control people.
14: You know, you see all these articles. and Now we've had eight months of them because the coup attempt didn't even slow down these folks who are desperate to return to normal, who tell themselves all these fictions about this man and how bad the situation is. Why do you think some folks I would describe as reasonably intelligent? but profoundly either self-delusional in this regard. Why did they actually think Trump would go away? Remember all those articles? People were still writing them. Why the hell did you think he would? This is collective pathology. Why would you think the man would ever stop? And why do you think his people would stop? you study the man, you know him. Why did they convince themselves of this?
4: He's just the worst. He's the weakest. He's the most corrupt. He's the most cruel. He's the most vindictive. And he's the most narcissistic baby constantly needs attention. Just wishful thinking, please go away. And also in believing that was a thing that could happen, the underestimation of the hideousness of the Republican Party, they weren't going to let him go away because he taught them something. He proved something to them. You keep being awful. You keep pushing the envelope, you keep getting away with it and you keep going further and getting away with more and getting away with more. So here we are in late twenty twenty one looking at the very real possibility that in a year's time this country is going to be a full blown autocracy where there are no longer free and fair elections. Yes, we will have two more years of a Biden presidency, but if anybody thinks after that a Democrat would be able to win a Federal election, he or she is kidding themselves.
14: Because you hear it all the time. You get these emails ignore him. Stop talking about him. Why are you focusing on him? I got an email the other day. You're making it worse by writing things like this. But again, go into your knowledge of the human mind. What does the human mind do or this sort of personality have to do to sustain such fantasies that it's childish? This is a childish society. I understand that. But to literally think if I close my eyes and ignore it, a problem will go away. What is going on in the minds, the collective minds of folk who make these assertions just ignore it? It's
4: affected all of us and taken a toll. And I think people are looking for an easy way out. Hey, we ignore him. He goes away, right? And when people don't ignore him, because it would be irresponsible to <laughs> they get mad, because they think that we're perpetuating the problem. It's hard for Ethan empathetic human beings to understand just how effective allowing other people to express and act on their cruelty. Very difficult for some people to realize just how cruel a very large majority, minority, maybe maybe a majority of human beings can be if, as you said earlier, they're given permission. Donald did exactly that. He gave people permission to be their worst self, And in the two years, the Republicans had the House, Senate, the White House, and the Supreme Court, the very worst people among us, were not only represented by just about 100% of the federal government, their beliefs were espoused by and championed by the guy in the Oval Office, metastasized. So it's a much bigger problem now than it was functionally, because it's so much more out in the open so much it's like acceptable now
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with David Pakman detailing the most recent story in the saga of Trump claiming victory in 2020. The broadcast discussed the failed California recall. In the Thick discussed some of the demographics of how that recall went down. The Rachel Maddow Show looked at the impacts of the ongoing harassment campaign against election workers. The Majority Report explored the details of the upcoming redistricting and impact of gerrymandering. And the Chauncey Vega Show discussed the collective psychology of Trump supporters and also those who desperately want to ignore him. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the takeaway getting further into the upcoming redistricting and what it would take to stop it. We published a story at Mother Jones uh, a little while ago based on an analysis from a Democratic firm called Target Smart that found that Republicans could pick up anywhere from six to 13 seats in just four states alone, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina and Texas through redistricting. So Republicans are in major control of this process. And by all indications, they're going to be very aggressive in terms of the maps that they're going to draw in these states. And the Tom Hartman program explained another of the instances in which Trump attempted to use the Justice Department to steal the election.
11: Tuesday afternoon, ABC News published this letter that Jeffrey Clark had written that he wanted to go out over the signature
0: of the acting attorney general, Mr. Rosen. Clark was saying to the governor, you know, we want you to know that we think we, the the Department of Justice, think that there's fraud in this election. And you should call into session your your legislature so that they can select alternative electors. In other words, swing your vote from Biden to Trump. You can do it. You can do it legally. It's constitutional. And that's true, by the way. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofeleftcom slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
4: Hi Jay, this is Allison from Boulder, Colorado. So, the thing about the safe, legal, and rare thing is that it is basically slut-shaming. It's all about shaming women for having an unwanted pregnancy in the first place, no matter how it happened. This is something that has really disgusted me for a long time about how certain, mostly white male, Democrats talk. I'm really glad to finally be hearing others address it as well. Thanks for the awesome show.
5: Hi Jay, Maureen here. Boston, as the dust was still in the air on 9-11-2001. I realized, fearfully, that Bush II would use this, somehow, as a reason to invade Iraq. A loose network of like-minded emailers back then assembled into the 2002 equivalent of social media. We kept one another aware of backdoor political maneuverings. We wrote letters to Congress. As a spiritual person myself, I tried appealing to Bush's born-again side. I wrote to the Pope, who had declared himself against the war, asking him to visit and then stay in Baghdad because no one would bomb there with him in the way. I had been behind John Kerry until he voted for the Horror and for the Patriot Act. My sister-in-law said that if Billy Graham favored the war, so did she. I stopped going to church until I realized that Episcopalians didn't agree with him. I relive the treachery and lies of Rumsfeld and Cheney and the country's headlong descent into war in a slow burn series about the lead up to the war, including Ahmed Chalabi's self-serving assurances that Saddam Hussein and friends were amassing nuclear weapons, and oh, so many other terrible lies. One aspect of that war, and most others, is the influence of the defense industry. Both Rumsfeld and Cheney had financial interest there. Rachel Maddow, in her book, Drift, The Unmooring of American Military Power Calls Out the Military-Industrial Complex, So does the Oliver Stone Netflix documentary, The Untold History of the United States, showing how that group undermined post-World War II efforts for peace. Until we find a way to get rid of the financial incentives for elected officials, lobbyists, and rich donors, I fear we will drift from one military action to another. And, until then, our health care system, human services, schools, infrastructures will all be given leftovers while this country buys weapons and pays the human and financial costs of maintaining the military. Of course, sadly, there's never a recognition of the cost to countries invaded and occupied. As the bumper stickers say, I look forward to the day when schools will be fully funded and the Air Force will have to hold bake sales to buy new bombers.
15: Hi, Jay. This is Maureen from Boston, Mass. I really enjoy the show, and I've been listening since the early aughts. So I'm one of your oldest fans in more ways than one. I was listening to you today talk about Brian Williams, and I had no, no cause to back him, and I, I don't especially, but it made me think the way he says of the war prayer by Mark Twain, and in it, the preacher prays for the young men going out to war, and may they be victorious, and such so on. And then the stranger comes in and he says, I am commissioned by God to put into words the other parts of it, the part which the pastor and you in your hearts fervently prayed silently. And it goes on and he says, Lord, Lord our father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts,
2: our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them. With them in spirit, we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord, our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded, writhing in pain. Help us to... Lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out, ruthless with their children, to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst, sport of the sudden flames of summer and the icy winds of winter, broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave, and denied it. For our sakes, who adore thee, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love, of him who is the source of love, and who is the ever-faithful refuge and friend of all who are sore beset, and who seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts.
15: Amen! And I thought perhaps it was in this view of a beautiful war weapon that Brian Williams was trying to achieve this level of irony. And sailed. So, my two cents. Maureen Doyle, Boston. Thank you.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to Allison and Maureen for their comments by voicemail. That's when you email me and I turn it into audio. But then we heard from Maureen from Boston again when she called in, and I am very glad to now be aware of The War Prayer by Mark Twain. I had not heard of that before. And it is a very generous interpretation of Brian Williams' comments, but I don't think that's what he was going for. (laughs) Today, though, I want to talk about 9-11 conspiracy theories because we did an episode on 9-11, and so naturally, that is the next step. The big one that comes up always is World Trade Center Building 7. And the story on that that makes perfect sense to me is that debris falling from the collapse of the North Tower ignited fires on several floors in the building. Those fires burned for a long time all throughout the middle part of the day, weakening the structure of the building. And uh, even an hour before it collapsed, news agencies were already reporting on the possibility that it could collapse. For instance, CNN said, quote, "...we're getting information that one of the other buildings, Building 7, is on fire and has either collapsed or is collapsing." Now we're told there is a fire there and that the building may collapse as well, unquote. And to me, the fact that the reporter uses the phrase has either collapsed or is collapsing is a pretty good indicator of the total chaos and confusion happening that day. You know, people can try to do their best in a news agency On a day like 9-11 and not get everything right. So then it shouldn't actually be that much of a surprise when a short time later, a BBC reporter went on air and gave the incorrect report that the building had, in fact, collapsed. But it wasn't until about 30 minutes later that the building did actually collapse. And so this strikes me as an obvious case of confusion rather than conspiracy, but that false report has been used as evidence of foreknowledge of the building's intentional demolition.
16: Hey, Jay, this is Don in Seattle. I'm a first-time caller, long, long long-time listener. I discovered you about six months after you first started Best of the Left, and you've been a calming, informing voice in my ear every week for the last decade and a half, and I can't thank you enough. I just listened to 1443 Legacies of 9 11. I was actually very thrilled to at least hear a brief mention of Architects and Engineers for 9 11 Truth. And I would beg everybody to do a quick Google search for BBC Reporter, World Trade Center, Building Number 7. In short, this BBC reporter apparently got a press release a little too early. And uh, she is reporting that building number seven has collapsed while the building is standing tall over her shoulder. And um, about 15 minutes after she reports, it does collapse in the exact, just perfect demolition mode that the two towers went down. It's a smoking gun of the real big lie, much bigger than the current big lie, or at least as big. Thank you so much. Personally, my biggest
0: reason for not believing that conspiracy theory is that it would be a really dumb thing to do. If you're smart enough to pull off a controlled demolition of three World Trade Center towers and make it look like a terrorist attack then why would you be so dumb as to pre-write a news bulletin about a building collapsing before it collapsed to hand out to the press? I mean, the only thing that could possibly do is blow your cover. Whereas, if you don't write that press release and just demolish the building as planned— then you can be sure that the news agencies will write their own reports about it for you. There's nothing to gain and everything to lose in your conspiracy by leaking that information ahead of time for some reason. And that's before you even get to the possibility that someone along the line got confused between might collapse and has collapsed, which, given the chaos of the day, seems pretty reasonable in making that a much more palatable and reasonable explanation for that rather than uh, reaching for something like foreknowledge. But wait, we're not done. There was another comment about that clip from the show. Keep in mind that the clip about 9-11 conspiracy theories didn't even attempt to explain or debunk any of the theories. That wasn't the point of the segment. The host was treating them as fault and didn't feel the need to go into detail. And that's relevant for this next message.
17: Hi Jay, this is Michael. Love your show and agree with you almost all of the time. However, in your 9 11 podcast, there was someone saying that the Twin Towers were not brought down by controlled demolition. They said the reason this notion was false was because it was a conspiracy, and conspiracies were promoted by the likes of Alex Jones and architects and engineers for 9 11 Truth. And that's why it isn't true. So just to be clear, if what that caller said was accurate, then the host
0: in question would have been committing a logical fallacy by using guilt by association as proof of falsehood. That doesn't make sense. That wouldn't make sense. However, that is not what the host was doing. And so we actually have a case of a different logical fallacy called a straw man argument. And that's being made by the caller, which I got to say, really doesn't help your case. Well,
13: if
17: a real
0: discussion
9: is too heavy a lift, you can make an opponent that doesn't exist. You've built a straw man. It's easy to win straw man in this argument. Straw man, oh, it's hard to trust you when you misrepresent the
13: opposing view.
0: But there's more. This time about accepting low levels of rigorous scientific evidence to support a conspiracy theory while requiring a much higher level of evidence to debunk it. And, as a side note, a steel structure building in Tehran collapsed in 2017 due to fire. Another part of the conspiracy theory that Michael doesn't mention is that no steel structure building other than the ones that collapsed on 9-11 have ever been brought down by fire. But that is no longer true
17: over the last 20 years i have heard convincing scientific based arguments supporting controlled demolition as the mechanism for bringing down the towers i have never heard a real argument disputing the notion i have searched for a scientific peer-reviewed argument against controlled demolition but cannot find a single one i only want to know the truth either way and i continue to seek some peer-reviewed info supporting any conclusions but have found none
0: now, again, just to be clear, uh, although I may be reading between the lines a little bit, it sounds like Michael can't find a peer-reviewed report on either side of the debate to support any conclusions. And everyone should just be aware that this is a really dangerous place to be, accepting conspiracy theories that are just generally convincing, but then requiring irrefutable peer-reviewed blah-blah-blah proof To dislodge that theory, that is a path that leads to conspiracy thinking, whereas being open to differing theories and judging them on their merits while seeking hard science whenever possible is a much more balanced approach.
17: Last clip. Do you have any credible sources about the actual mechanisms for bringing down the towers or building seven, which was neither hit by a plane or caught fire? Thanks. Well, uh, we already addressed the fact that Building Number 7 was on fire, so
0: that makes me wonder just how hard you've really been looking for differing perspectives to question the conspiracy theories. But if you're interested, you may want to check out the, quote, Final Report on the Collapse of World Trade Center Building 7, Federal Building and Fire Safety Investigation of the World Trade Center Disaster, published November 20th, 2008 by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Or, honestly, you could probably just Google World Trade Center Demolition Conspiracy Theory Debunked and find a treasure trove of information and articles breaking down what the researchers think happened in addition to explanations of the various conspiracy theories and why they fall apart when you scratch just beneath the surface. I actually find that to be a very enjoyable and Enlightening activity and I'm not just talking about 9-11 a few years ago. I went down the flat earth debunking rabbit hole not because I needed to be convinced of the roundness of the earth But because I found it fascinating to hear what the conspiracy theories were, some of them even brought up concepts that I had never even thought of before, which gave me an excuse to learn something new. I mean, I learned all kinds of things about light refraction and atmospheric density and how quickly the curve of the Earth can be detected and lots of other things just by watching debunking videos. I mean, honestly, it was it was kind of fun. So The big difference between looking up conspiracy theories and looking up debunkers is that the debunkers will happily explain both sides of the argument. They will explain the conspiracy and then proceed to explain why it's wrong. The conspiracy theorists are much less likely to do that. So start with the debunkers and you'll get to hear both sides and judge the arguments for yourself. Otherwise, you'll end up in a fortress Of confirmation bias, which we are all susceptible to. And if you go too far down that path, you're in danger of beginning to reject any evidence that contradicts whatever you already believe. And once you're there, there is only one way out that I know of, which is to ask yourself, if what you believe to be true isn't true, how would you know?
9: what you believe to be true
15: is not true how would you know if you can't answer that then you might believe a conspiracy theory
9: oh oh you're trapped in a fortress of confirmation bias that's true of all.
0: That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support, or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to finding extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Bestoftheleft.com.